Before we start this podcast today, Bitchfest would just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land on which we are recording today, the Ngunnawal people, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, A very exciting little journey that we've decided to embark on because we feel like we've got a lot of things that we want to talk about that we can't really summarise into one article. And while we've got this free time in lockdown, why not have a bit more of an open conversation on a podcast? So I'm here. My name's Estelle. Yeah, so I'm Liv. I'm on Ngunnawal land, which is in Canberra. I do PPE, which is politics, philosophy and economics at ANU. And yeah, that's a bit about me. I'm Amy. I'm in Nantes. I am studying a Bachelor of Fine Arts, Design and Production at BCA. And I'm also based in NAM in Melbourne. I'm currently deferred from my course. I was doing screenwriting at RMIT and also come from an acting background, which is relevant to the conversation we are having today. Yeah, so we basically sort of decided through different voice memos of Estelle and I messaging each other that this was a wider discussion that we wanted to have about privilege in the arts, whether that's financial privilege, privilege that comes from nepotism or access to the industry and its networks. All those sort of topics and intersections of privilege are going to be covered in today's podcast. And then Estelle sort of was speaking with Amy and Amy's got great experience and knowledge in this area as well. So we thought we'd bring her on board for our first ever Bitchfest podcast pretty exciting. We also want to bring in more people as the series continues and Bitchfest is all about just having conversations with people in their 20s, everyone talking about how they're getting through the times, especially in lockdown and just stimulating minds again. So that's what we're here to do today. How did we decide to come around to this topic? Because we, I guess we've all experienced it in our own different, or at least both Amy and I have experienced this in our own lives. But Liv, you came across this after listening to a podcast. So if you want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, so I think I've always been aware of these things happening. But since obviously speaking to you guys and listening to this podcast, I became a bit more interested and aware of how these things play out within the industry specifically. And I was listening to a podcast that I listen to from time to time called Willosophy. is run by Will Anderson, the stand-up comedian. And he brings people on to sort of talk about their philosophies in life. But because he's a stand-up comedian, people that he tends to bring on are actors and other comedians. And he did a specific interview with a girl called Jenna Owen who works at SBS at The Feed. And they sort of got into this really interesting discussion about how finances and financial security comes into the acting realm and the creative realm. And what I found really interesting and what got Estelle and I talking about this is the inherent privilege that lies within being financially stable and going into things like auditions or job interviews 
and the difference between kids or young adults who aren't really that worried about when or where their next paycheck is going to come in and the difference between them and kids who do have to support themselves and aren't able to take as many sort of creative risks when it comes to auditions and things like that. I guess what we've all come to learn through our own experiences and research is that we're aware that there are certain privileges that really manifest within the creative arts industries that make it really difficult for people who don't come from a background of money or industry connections to really thrive and excel in these environments. Not that that is impossible, but what I've come to learn from my experience and my observations is that these people that do come from these backgrounds, where there is less money or less industry connections, tend to spend more time, you know, struggling and fighting to break into the industry than actually being able to work and get experience. I think it's a thing that people don't talk about enough. And I guess that's why we decided to actually just sit down and make a podcast episode about it. It's about acknowledging the cracks in the system. I think that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to bring anyone down. What we're trying to just do is bring awareness to the cracks that are there and just say, hey, this is how hard it is if you're three steps behind, you know. Mm -hmm. There needs to be solutions to elevate those people that are behind that need more kind of government support and like support through uni and grants through the arts and stuff like that to bring them up to the same level rather than pulling those other people who are already there back down. I think that's a good way to launch into what we want to talk about in terms of the cost of living and unrealistic expectations from past creatives from previous generations about funding your lifestyle as a creative when you're living in a inner city environment where the cost of living has increased dramatically and things like Centrelink and welfare haven't gone up at the same rate. This was something that was also discussed in the podcast that I was listening to that I referenced before about how in our parents' generation in sort of like the 80s and the 90s or even earlier as well, the dole or like the welfare payment for people who were our age was sometimes sort of comically called the unofficial artist payment in the sense that artists had this like small bit of financial freedom in that they could be on welfare and still continue their own artistic endeavours knowing that they could pay their rent at the end of the week. The thing about places like Sydney and Melbourne now is that living in the inner city is astronomical and not really financially viable for a lot of people our age. I know Amy has some experience in this in terms of people that have come to her sort of major art school and spoken about this like struggling life of the uni student artist that they sort of see through rose-coloured glasses. When I started my university degree at this fine arts school, you're expected to do Monday to Friday, 9am to 6pm, just to be able to do that is a massive privilege that involves mostly students that have come from backgrounds of privileged families that can support them to do that. 
We had a, have a lot of professionals, especially since I'm in my last year at university. A lot of professionals come in and tell us how they got into the industry, how they found work, what they got paid. And some of it can be quite frustrating because a lot of their stories are kind of imagining back in the day where they were living off Centrelink, that they were able to pay their rent with and were able to buy food with. And we're also able to fund their projects with a lot of stories of people just creating work with their friends and paying for the theatre themselves and paying for the set themselves. Yeah, they kind of look back on it with rose-tinted glasses of how fun it was. And that's just kind of accepted that that's what you do. You kind of suffer through this art. You are poor, but you do it anyway. However, we just don't live in the same world where we can live off Centrelink um, because, as you said, the cost of rent is so much higher than the income that you receive from Centrelink. When we talk about, like, the Centrelink payment and even, like, being able to sit down and, like, when we started Bitchfest and being able to sit down and have this podcast, I think one of the better things that have come out of COVID is the, you know, COVID disaster relief payment, which has allowed me to spend time to put my energy into something really productive and creative. Estelle, do you want to sort of speak about your background in terms of the arts and moving to Melbourne and stuff like that? Yeah, definitely. I came into the industry with little background knowledge on how it worked. My family had no involvement in the acting or creative world. Growing up, I I wanted to do classes and stuff, but they weren't really an option just due to how expensive a lot of them were. Parents weren't willing to invest in it and they pretty much had this perspective for me. If it's something you're really, really passionate about and you really want to do, then you'll find a way to make it work when you finish school. I obviously I auditioned for the big major acting schools and I didn't get into any of them Um, as most people don't it's very very tough and competitive so I ended up hearing about a school in Melbourne through someone that is very successful at the moment I auditioned for that school and I got in and The only reason I could actually afford to go there was because I had a bunch of compensation money from a car crash that I'd been in. So I put all my money from that compensation that we'd received into going to this school and took a big leap of faith, packed up all my shit and moved to Melbourne. I quickly came to learn that this whole experience of being able to move interstate and attend an acting drama school was extremely romanticized by people who came from privilege and it wasn't actually set up for people who didn't come from a financial backing um I think had I you know come from a family that knew more about how the industry worked chances are they probably wouldn't have let me go off to Melbourne without a bunch of money and, you know, try and jump into an acting course because they probably would have been like, hey, 
that's not going to be enough. Like you're going to need money to buy headshots. You're going to need money to buy equipment to film self tapes. If you actually want to get an agent, you know, going and going to an acting school is just half, if not a quarter of the whole experience when it comes down to being a working actor. I ended up getting a job working at one of the major casinos in Melbourne. I was grateful to have work because I wasn't eligible for Centrelink when I first moved. I was still 21. The way the, I guess, the place operated, it was around a 24-hour rotating roster, um, meaning that, you know, I was doing a lot of really intense late-night shifts, um, 4 a.m. starts, 9 p.m. starts, all in the same week, had zero sleep schedule, And I relied on this to be able to afford to live and attend this school. As a creative arts student, you're expected to be kind of on a a peak mental and physical aptitude. You know, you you can't really be turning up to class half asleep. You You can't be turning up to class emotional. You know, it's very much you're there, you're ready to go. Otherwise, you get kicked out, you know. It's very hard and fast kind of training environment, especially if you're working and acting in theatre where you're required to work with a lot of other people. And if you're not up to a standard where other people are who have come from these privileged backgrounds, who don't need to work, who can show up to class fresh and ready to go with as much sleep as they can, you know, people get angry and people at school kind of don't like you. And that plays into a whole other you know, mental element of it. I think one of the things I noticed first about this whole topic when I when I started university was that, I, like, I'm incredibly privileged and I wasn't eligible for youth allowance until I turned 22 and I was 20 or 21 when I started uni. So my parents were giving me that amount But having been one of the richest people in my high school, then I went to this school where I came from one of the poorest families that is upper middle class. It just was shocking to me the amount of wealth that these students have going to this school because the hours are nine to six Monday to Friday, but really you're expected to get there at 8.45 in the morning. If you're more than 10 minutes late, you're marked absent. And also just if you are failing to meet deadlines and failing to make it to class on time, if you're working and if you're fully supporting yourself, how are you meant to balance that? You just get kicked out. And I had a couple friends that were f- completely supporting themselves. They were older in their kind of mid to late 20s. So they kind of had that savings behind them already. But then I also worked on the weekends on Saturdays and Sundays. And I, I still felt at a huge disadvantage to kids that were just allowed to go to university and be completely funded by their parents Um, or at these fine art schools. They will come back with, why do you have a job? Maybe don't go to work this week. Maybe if you can't handle this, you can't handle the industry. And I remember in first year, a lot of us being told, if this is too hard for you, 
if you can't meet all of these deadlines and if these hours are too hard, you can't be in the industry because this is the industry. But then also if you're in the industry, realistically, it won't be those hours and you will hopefully be getting, you'll be getting paid for some of it. I just want to quickly jump in, I think is a really important part of this whole conversation is therapists are not cheap and my first year that I moved to Melbourne where I had zero income was struggling to get a job and was at this acting school I was severely severely depressed I couldn't even afford a therapist that's a whole other conversation in its own but being able to have the, the leg up to afford a therapist as well as to, I guess, afford to not have to work so that you're not as mentally fatigued or feeling like you're as behind or feeling as less worthwhile as these other kids at these schools. It's a huge, huge part of the whole greater conversation. So I think that's something that's worth touching on as well. Yeah, yeah. that was a good point. Just And again, to relay it back to what Amy was saying, these teachers coming at you guys in the sense of, you know, it's sink or swim. If you can't keep up, then you're not trying hard enough. And even just saying that, it's like, well, not everyone's coming from the same place. Not everyone's, it's, you're addressing everyone like everyone's on the same playing field. Mm. But for some people, even just to turn up to class is already such a huge hurdle because, as you said, Estelle, you've had this overnight shift at the pub or the casino or whatever. You turn up, you're tired, whereas some kid who's living down the road in bloody Malvern, you know, with their parents, doesn't really matter because they can just sort of rock up and they have the privilege of that extra time and those extra funds to devote into their craft. And I find that irritating in you know it's I guess it's not really these people's fault but that level of ignorance of well you're just not working hard enough Mm. it's like well you have no idea how hard I'm working because you don't see all the other things I'm trying to do behind the scenes just to get to this level just to keep up which I think would be a sort of interesting point to segue into talking about internships I read this book which we'll put we'll put all of these references in the um show notes of the podcast but I read this book at the start of the year called 100 Years of Dirt by Rick Morton he's a really famous and successful journalist and since I'm not really in the sort of artistic acting or any of that sort of stuff I think journalism is something that I'm just generally more intrigued by and this whole book while it's more of a memoir about his life a lot of it is about this cycle of poverty and the inherent privileges that people have coming into industries like journalism and how whole careers and building up your resume is built upon accepting to do free work and doing free labour and accepting internships that are unpaid. And so I thought I'd just read an excerpt from the book that I just highlighted this morning that I remember when I read it thinking, oh, my God, I've seen this play out in different areas of journalism. So this is what he says when he's... So 
if for anyone who doesn't know, Rick Morton's from um, Ipswich, which is a pretty poor area of Brisbane. Um, he grew up with a single mum and lived in housing commission. And he talks about how when he was trying to get in to work at the Gold Coast Bulletin, there was all these like free and internships. So this is what he says. The problem, internships. They are the perpetual motion machine of modern media. The traditional entree in relation to jobs has all but become extinct and uni grads are now required to enter the Colosseum of work experience as unpaid interns. Winner takes the job in an industry that is collapsing. In a moment of peak, I questioned an industry's colleagues' promotion of seven-week unpaid internships at a large media company that rhymes with Schmerfax. The responses handedly illustrated how feebly people from the middle classes and beyond understand the limitations of capital. Some people who deserve those opportunities can't afford to work for free, I wrote. The immediate response, and I must stress that this is the very first thing I received from the colleague in reply, was this. For fuck's sake, Rick, get over it. Unfortunately, my class barrier doesn't come with a stepladder or scissor lift, but or whatever it is people use to be socially mobile these days. So I thought that was just like a really interesting point in something to do like journalism, where the point he's sort of making is that it is an inherent privilege to be able to work for free because, you know, when else are you going to work? This idea that, oh, I'll just work on the weekends. Well, if you're in somewhere like Sydney or Melbourne, you've got to keep up with the rental market and you've got to keep up with your living expenses. So for a lot of people who aren't as privileged, they just aren't in the position to accept free work because they have to get by. So I think that was really interesting in terms of internships in journalism. It's a super interesting book. Like, I mean, it's extremely full on. He really dives into how we approach quotas, how we approach having a actually diverse base in terms of media so that when we're covering stories to do with people who come from disadvantage, there's at least one person in the room who can relate to that story rather than, you know, this group of privileged people trying to interpret what's going on. I think that's the gaping hole that I see at my university. Like, we're all creating art and putting on shows of scripts of people that have been through struggle and just from different backgrounds and whatnot. And every single person or close to every single person at my university is like privileged white person. And sometimes it just feels so, I don't want to use the word shallow, but it just feels so ironic. Yeah. It just feels ironic Mm. that we're portraying theatre and art is meant to portray people's experiences and worlds. And then the people at my university that are putting these on, we're all from the same world. There's not really space for people of diverse backgrounds. Well, this is interesting what you're tapping into here because from what you've said about how tough, air quotes, tough, the industry is and how fine art schools sort of are trying to prepare you in a way for, you know, if you can't keep up, get out. But then also trying to make art about underprivileged people. (laughs) but not letting underprivileged people have a space within their institutions. It's sort Mm. of, it all clashes in my head, to be honest. I think it's really ironic 
specifically when you're at acting schools, when you, you're, you're given all these kind of characters, you're given streetcar named desire, you know, working class characters who are fucking struggling to the bone. And it's interesting, it comes back to the podcast that you were talking about before, Liv, with Jenna Owens was talking about this actor who wearing a pair of overalls and was pretending to be a mechanic. But realistically, that actor has never seen a pair of overalls in their life. And I think it's frustrating, you know, growing up as someone that's come from like a middle working class family with, you know, parents that have, I've seen like my mum's worked four or five jobs at once to support us type of thing. And, you know, you're playing these characters that are poor characters, but majority of the kids actually representing these characters are wealthy kids who have grown up in Mossman and Melvin and have never had to experience the level of, I guess, labour, if that makes sense, the burden of labour, really. And it's, it's frustrating because not saying that these people aren't amazing actors and I guess, if anything, if these are, you know, good actors, they can convince you that they have experienced that so they're doing their job well. But it is frustrating because it means that I guess a lot of the art loses its purpose, you know. Where, where's the representation in, in what's being put out there, put on stage, you know? Moving forward and wrapping up what we were saying, I think something that has come through in all of your experiences and hearing about it and thinking about the Rick Morton book and the Jenna Owen podcasts, it's about removing barriers to entry at every level. So if we think about with on an institutional level in terms of these schools that we've talked about, okay, if you want your cohort to be diverse, then commit to diversity targets, commit to having you know, whatever it is, 10% Indigenous students or whatever it is that you have to raise so that those things actually get pushed through rather than sort of sitting around hands in the air going, oh, I don't understand why we don't have a very diverse cohort. We'll advertise, commit to making sure that you have the services in place to support those students, not just in the entry process, but throughout their degree. And then the same thing that we've, the same thing that we've talked about and then how that has to translate into the industry. If you're committed to diversity, then make sure that there's not only diverse range of people on screen, but on the set. I think one of the really positive things that I have noticed during my education is kind of observing the people that have working in hospitality have kind of been out and seen the world and yeah like you were saying have actually been gone and lived these lives as whether they're working at a bar or working as a cleaner or nanny or whatever it is they are the people that are the best at working in teams at my university we put on shows all of the time. We work with the dance school, the acting school, the musical theatre school, and we put on shows with them and we work as one big production company and they're basically self-driven by students. We have mentors and a director who actually work in the industry, but by the time we get to third year, we're pretty self-sufficient in producing these ourselves. And I, I 
do notice that it's the people that have been out and worked in hospitality, lived out of their parents for a couple years. They are the people that work extremely well in this environment. And I do see them having an advantage as well in getting work after because they're able to work with other people. Sometimes I have observed students that do still live at their parents um, and don't quite understand what it's, have never had a job. They don't understand um, what it's like to kind of be supporting yourself. They struggle in these environments because they haven't learnt basic tools um, to just work as a team. Um, and I think that it's those people that do have those experiences, they bring something extra to the table. There are people that will, will kind of break through all these barriers um, or setbacks that we're talking about that do bring in this rawness and understanding. Mm, it's like that life experience speaks for itself. Yeah. I just like wanted to say just in wrapping up, obviously everything that we do here at Bitchfest is about expanding the circle and expanding the conversation. So please, if you feel like writing on this subject or you want to contribute your own conversation, look at the submissions page on our website. We'll link everything below. Also, everything that we've talked about in terms of books or podcasts or movies, that will all be linked in the podcast notes. I just want to say thank you guys for listening. Thank you if you have made it this far. We really appreciate you. And, yeah, thank you for taking the time to listen to us, especially during lockdown where it's very hard to find the motivation to do pretty much anything. So we very much appreciate the support. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>